Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and guide you to take action to be all you can be. Today, my guest is Dara Greer. Born and bred in WA, Dara, trained as a chef and patissier, created the wholesale and retail patisserie business, Mason Perry, with his wife. Then in 2008, they sold the business and took a couple of years out to focus on their growing family. It was during this time that their eldest daughter, Hannah, showed signs of gluten intolerance. Being unable to find a decent, properly fermented sourdough loaf provoked Dara to make his own for his family. It was from this event through a market store that led to the opening of the hugely popular Wild Bakery in South Fremantle in 2013. Dara, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryn. Thanks for having me. So you grew up in, in Western Australia. Yeah. One of the questions I like to ask my guests right at the start, because it is called WA Real, mm. is um, what it was like growing up here in Western Australia, because I only moved here. Like, yeah, seven I understand. Years. Um, I came here as about six years old and Where from? spent a few months in the, in the city and then headed off to the country. I was actually born in Ireland and um, no accent because I was so young, nobody ever picks it. Um, Apart from the name. Yeah, the name sets it off. But everybody in Perth or everybody in Australia is from somewhere. Yes. Only by the smallest of generations, you know. So I find that it doesn't matter who you talk to, they're from somewhere else. Eventually you you dig into it and you find out that they are. Um, So, yeah, it was great. I lived the perfect childhood. I had lived in the country, ran feral every day, Um, lots of good families, country, community, you know, you couldn't pick a better life to live as a young lad. Um, so my life, my growing up in WA has been as good as it gets, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Were you ever tempted to leave? Yeah, I left for about seven years. When yeah. After I'd finished my apprenticeship and training as a young chef, I thought, right, well, let's go out and see the world. So I did. I travelled off, worked in London, visited the Middle East before I had a brain, Um and just did a lot of traveling, traveled around Australia, drove a little Subaru. I can't remember which model it was, but it was a small car and pretty much drove it anywhere and everywhere around Australia until yep. it almost died on me. And then I decided to sell it and um, flew back to Perth for a wedding. And yeah, um, yeah, I just worked everywhere I went. So just continued to learn and follow food and follow my interest in food and yeah. you know, in the places that I visit. Where does that uh, interest in food come from? It comes directly from the farm, like from not, pr- not you know, growing up with, you know, sheep and all that sort of stuff, but I think actually being the youngest of five, I'm, the, you know, the last one out of bed or perhaps just the slowest to get out, everybody's gone and I'm stuck and I'm like, oh, what do I do now? So I'd spend the day with mum and she would be the traditional country wife. So she, we'd be doing a lot of cooking, making jams and that sort of stuff. So without really noticing it, I was getting a lot of food exposure at a very young age on quite a regular basis. So right. sort of serving a pre-apprenticeship, if you like. Yeah. And so it was a logical progression to go into being a... <sighs> it wasn't really because it wasn't conscious. I didn't know that that's what was happening. It's only an adult person that looks back and goes, mm. that's what happened. Yeah. I think at the time we I did a cooking class for something at like the age of 12 and... I, for some reason, I do things the opposite to to the norm, if you like, and all the boys couldn't do it and the girl could or couldn't. Maybe it was the other way around. And one of them, the young lady in the class commented to me and said, gee, you're good at this. And I'm like making a lasagna or something. I've never made it before in my life. And I'm like, okay. Tucked that away into the back of my brain. And then a few years later, the subject of or the, the decision to what sort of career do you want? And I thought, well, I'm good at that, so I'll try that. Mm. And I found it you know, nurturing it sort of suits my character and suits my disposition. So, so, so um, tell me a bit about um, setting up Mason Perry and, and that sort of time. <sighs> um, that was a deep desire just to get into business and have a crack at it. I was right. 27 or eight years old, sort of had enough of the hot kitchen, if you like, and wanted to run a business. So that was the first one I found, and it was, it was, it had been run really well, I think, during the eighties in its uh, original inception, and then it had been sort of traded through a few different hands, and they made one mistake after another. Mm. So when I found it, it was, you know, uh, pretty much a wreck. It was like buying an old car and restoring it. 
So I sort of went through the, the falling in love with that idea and then the reality of finding the spare parts, which is the people to make it work, training them and getting all of that together. So I think out of a very small, maybe 50 or 60 square meter kitchen, I sort of brought that Phoenix back to life. And um, yes, re- after about five or six years, I realized all I'm doing is making money. All I'm doing is, in, and there's so much more that could be done. Yeah. Because it was a wholesale business and it's all about, you know, how cheap can you make something or how competitive can you, your service be? And I found that deeply unsatisfying. So I thought, okay, well, let's get well, this Just on. to focus on the money. Yeah. So just to have a business that only makes money is like, that's kind of, I understand that's the point of it, but yeah. it's kind of missing the point of it too. So what, what is the point of it for you? Well, I think business can be a lot more than just doing money. You should be enriching what you're doing and if all you're doing is being competitive on the dollar then you're not enriching anything you know you're not giving you're scratching the surface of what's possible you could have good relationships with suppliers and with customers and you know i didn't have those all it is is money in money out try to hold on to some in the middle and yeah i found that to be not really good for us so was that part of the decision to sell it? A huge part of it, yeah. That and, you know, we started having a young family. Trish and I, got we got married. She was actually one of my customers. And <laughs> speaking of bad relationships. Went home no. with more than a loaf. <laughs> yeah. um, but we were only making pastries, you know, cakes and mm. biscuits, that sort of stuff. Um, so we ha- had a young family, a two-year-old, and I just thought this is – I'm missing out on too much. Every day I come home tired and, you know, so I thought, all right. Let's achieve two goals at once. Let's stop being dissatisfied with the workplace, which we spend way too many hours in. Yes. And stop being dissatisfied with the young family life. So we sold it, spent a lot more time at home and um, waited for the next idea to, you know, be delivered to my mind, um, which didn't happen. I was, you know, nothing, nothing got my interest. Nothing got me out of bed in the morning. Nothing really captured me. Um, so it was because this went on for a couple of years. Yeah, right? well, it was about three years. Yeah. So what was what was that like? That time. It's it a, just- well, it's awesome not working, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it's also um, yeah, we were just focused on family life. We focused on our yeah. We had our son in there, and he was born, and you know, had his his early childhood at home with him, which was fantastic. You know, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't give that up for anything for any yeah. anything at all. Um, yeah, it's. I don't know. It's it's a bit strange not going to work every day. Yeah. You know, not having that constant routine. So we find new routines. You know, living. We had a nice big backyard there in um, Wycombe Valley, and um, started to put a garden in there and do more things around the house. But ultimately, you know, you've got to make a living as well. Um, and we noticed Hannah, our eldest, was just not thriving as a kid. Not sick. We're not off to hospital or anything serious like that. Just not a happy kid. Yeah, and every person we went to just said it's colic, and eventually one particular doctor said, "Have you tried gluten?" And I thought, "Yeah, I've heard of gluten intolerance. I understand what it is." But yeah. So we took all the white things out of her diet, and the other thing we thought of was, "But she's not eating that much. Like she's two and a half or three years old." Yeah. Um, but we had to take it out of Trisha's diet too because she's breastfed. Right. And that meant it has to come out of my diet because we're, you know. <laughs> By default. Yeah, exactly. We're, so just so we're clear, yeah. what is gluten and what foods have gluten? Gluten in? is in just about everything. Gluten right. is two proteins that bond together with moisture. Right. Um, gliadin and glutenin, I think it is. And as soon as you add moisture to them, and they're present in wheat, all right. forms of wheat, and we use wheat in, almost, in so many things. Chicken packet flavoring has got wheat in it. It's actually got roasted gluten in it. Um, not that I would eat that, but that's, you know, it's it's insidious. It's in so much of our diet, of our sort of highly processed foods. And having run a, proce- a food processing business, I was sort of vaguely aware of its presence. Um, so when we took all the white things out and just went, get rid of it all, so rice, pasta, bread, everything, Hannah's started sleeping. She started, you know, behaving like you would expect a young two or three-year-old to behave. So we thought, this is just magic. But 
we then had to deal with a gluten-free diet. So, you know, we're looking at gluten-free pastas and tried to con continue to live the same life. Mm. But at the same time, we were reading books about fermentation and gut health and this sort of stuff. And so the penny dropped one day and I realized, hang on. So if we treat the gut, it'll be able to eat the gluten. It'll be able to process it a lot more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And then we sort of realized that it's actually a combination of everything. It's no one thing. There's no magic pill to a good diet. It's, it's a lots of little factors. So we wanted to stick to what culturally works so that it's not overly jarring and not a diet, but we wanted to change our lives so that mm -hmm. it would be something that we'd sustain forever. Um, so I picked sourdough to be the pickle or the ferment that we had at home. Right. Always interested in bread but never made it before and um, started making you know, little batches of sourdough bread at home and started giving it to Hannah directly and I used to put you know some raw honey on there or something for her to help her eat it. Turns out it wasn't sour. She didn't need it. Yeah. Um, and she was happy with the bread and the diet. When we found that it was working in our family, we thought, this is something we could share. Maybe this would help for, with other people because it was becoming quite prevalent at the time. And I think it's even more so now. So um, the need to earn a living was was ever-present. <laughs> <laughs> so Trish is like always is a good behind every man there's a better woman. So she's like, maybe we should do one of these farmer's markets. So I thought, all right, we'll go there. So we weren't going there with bread. We went in with something that I knew, which was gingerbread and biscuits, that sort of stuff, Christmas products. Yeah, so you were making this in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, no, we had a commercial kitchen that I borrowed um, from somebody I knew in, yeah. in a nearby suburb. So we, it was all properly made. You know, We had a, a license for that and all the mm. usual regulations. Um, so we made a few batches of food, took them down to the markets, and they all sold really well. Um, and inside all of that, I've been making chocolate brownies. This commercial kitchen was was um, uh, contracted by me to make this chocolate brownie tray that, that I was distributing around Perth because that's something that I knew. Even though I wasn't enjoying it, I was doing it because it would make some sort of living out of it. And I realized there just wasn't enough money in it. So we took, we stopped that business and went to the farmer's market and sold more chocolate brownies in a day than I would have in a month at the other thing. And right. I thought, this is great. So, you know, we've been going to those markets now for the last seven years, eight years, I think. So it, it was started off as a two or three week trial that turned out to be, you know, almost, well, for now it's a forever thing. So, mm. so tell me, what is the actual difference between sourdough and the regular sort of bread that I might get if I walked into Woolies? Or yeah, Coles? sourdough is just, it's simply the culture that goes in the bread. But the problem with mass manufactured bread is it's a lot more instant than we realize. It takes about, it takes less than an hour to make a loaf of bread today. Mm. When I built the oven in Fremantle, the guy that built it, he said to me that he did his apprenticeship in a, in a big manufacturing facility uh, and he said they used to have fermentation chambers. So even with the supermarket-style bread, they were fermenting it. So they'd add the yeast and the other flour and water and then they'd ferment it for a couple of hours. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. So even 30 years ago, the supermarket bread was better than the stuff we're getting today. The stuff we're getting today is literally glue in a bag that's baked and fills up with oxygen. Yeah. Or carbon dioxide. And um, it's smashed out to me. It, well, it's smashed out for that very same thing that I didn't like about Maison Perry, that to meet a demand at a price and service that is ultimately unsatisfying. And there's no mm. value there present for the customer because they buy, are now buying stuff that doesn't nourish them. It stops the pain of hunger going. It gets that to go away, but it doesn't nourish. Mm. And that sows the seed of how a little bakery like Wild can be successful because ultimately it, nourishment, you know, it manifests in bad health. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's making now making a better product. Mm. It's not just about something that tastes good or, you know, has to fit a, a strict criteria of sourdough. It also has to be good it has to be, yeah. you know, otherwise it's, it's a false, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has to, but it's a false thing that you're selling if it doesn't meet every marker. And for me, a diet should be a lifestyle, not a diet. By definition, people go on diets, they 
means they're going to come off them. Mm. And so when we started out, we wanted to do something that would last forever. So we started eating sourdough bread because, well, we never want to stop. If it's the right thing to do, if it's the wrong thing to do, get it out of your diet. Um, so it has to meet all the criteria. It must be satisfying to the mind, to the gut, and to the body. And if it if it doesn't taste good, like if if you eat and just go, oh, this is horrible. I know it's good for me, but it tastes yeah, like rubbish. <laughs> then then you won't do it. You won't continue to do it. Yeah. It'll be eventually you'll be like, I've just had enough. Whereas if it does taste good, then yeah, it doesn't become something that you hate. It just becomes something that you do. Mm. So or even that you might look forward to if you're that way inclined. Yeah. I mean, just so we're clear with the listeners, I've been a customer of yours for <laughs> over 18 months yeah, now. Yeah, thank you. And it's, it's, it's just taken the morning toast routine mm. and, and my daughter's sandwich box to a whole new level. And, um, you know, I go swimming, like I said before, and mm. I take, I take my bread with me and go and toast it. And, and it, and it's, it, it does. It's very nourishing. It feels great. I don't feel bloated. I don't get a nasty sugar rush off it mm. as well. Yeah. I think I, th- I had a lot of customers at the beginning. When we opened Wild, it's in a very awkward location, side street, literally no sign at all. The sign now is much better than we had. And when people would come in and they'd look at me straight in the eye and go, what are you putting in this bread? I'm like, well, I can't afford cocaine, so yeah. you know, you'll have to go to around the other corner for that. Um, I'm not putting anything in it. It's what I'm doing to it. And they're like, well, what are you doing to it? I said, Letting it sit around for a while before yeah. I stick it in the oven. Yeah. Letting it ferment, letting this really magical process, this fermentation take place where, you know, you add water to flour. If you just leave it, it will naturally ferment at the right temperature. So we coax that along with a little bit of salt and better temperatures until it's ready to go in the oven. And that almost in a, in a, without getting too much into the science of it, it pre-digests the food. So that by the time humans eat it, it's already broken down. A lot of the gluten structure that's present converts to amino acids at about 150 degrees in the oven. So it is a much easier food to digest if it's fermented properly. So you could take a supermarket loaf, get rid of some of the garbage that's in it, and ferment that and not end up with the same product, but certainly end up with a product that wouldn't be detrimental to your health. Mm. So... But, yeah, so a lot of the customers were saying we're we're amazed that after 15 or 20 years of having no bread in their diet, suddenly they can eat bread again. It's like being let out, you know, like taking a dog to the park and letting it off the leash and they can run wild with it again. Pardon the the pun there. So, yeah, there's a real sense of freedom for customers to be able to eat it and feel good again. So that, that was kind of what we were thinking when we first made it at home and thought, this works. Let's share it. That's how business can be a richer experience than simply making a dollar. It can, you can share your knowledge. You can share your love and your joy of something with people. And then they can get the same benefit that you get. So I think that hopefully that helps your question from there. Yeah. So how did you go from making it at home to, well, the first step would be taking it to the market store, mm. wouldn't it? Um, it's yeah it's tricky isn't it because every person who ends up with a business really struggles with that you know well how do you do that how do you traverse that gap um i started the market store is quite a, a funny thing because literally everything i started with was borrowed from somebody you know i even used gaffer tape from one from my neighbor nick who was the first person i met in the farmer's market because my, I was missing a piece of the pole to hold up the tent for the, <laughs> for the stall. So everything was borrowed. The tent was borrowed from some family friends and the tables were my sisters. Um, the whole thing. It's just you ask people for help. You say, hey, can you do this for me? It might not be a big thing, but you've got to be prepared to say, I need something. I want something. Would you mind? And hopefully – People say yes, and there's enough people saying yes just to get that one stall going. Mm. And then we turn around and go, okay, well, we actually need a proper kitchen here. So after a period of time, we're able to save up enough money to build a kitchen there in South Rio mm. to um, stand on our own legs, if you like. But a lot of begging and borrowing, I think, is the the solution so, to that problem. So it was it was selling the the bread as well as the other stuff at at the market, which almost seed funded 
Yeah, it does. It's, but it also market tests it without you know, being too poetic about it. It really gives you a sense of, do people want this? Yeah. How was it received when you first? Um, I was quite blown away, actually. Humbled, I think would be the word, because, you know, you've, you've got your own personal interests and you're never in your wildest mind to think, oh, that a thousand people out there might be interested in this. You think a few might, sure, but not, hmm. not thousands. And then you start to do it and share it and you realise, oh, these people are crazy for this stuff, like really, really enthusiastic. And there was, I don't know, just that, that constant testing. Every time I bring out a, whether it's a loaf of bread or a new croissant or biscuit or something, bring it out and people would try it. You get immediate feedback. You know on the day whether it was the right direction to go with something. Quite a few things, get rid of that. That was a bad yeah. idea. And that's, you know, that's part of the process. But you're really mark, road testing it as you're going. So by the time we run the markets for two years, we had a very well-refined range of products that we put into the store. And from day one, we knew there's a market for this. We just have to be patient and allow that market to find us. Right. So so was that, pa- so was that patient once you had found the location in South Frio? It's a patience in everything, I think. Yeah. You know, patience to find a spot that will work for you, both, mm. you know, in terms of infrastructure and location yeah. and affordability, but also patience as in once you've got your door open, they have to find you. You might not necessarily have the dollars for a big advertising budget or a big campaign, so you have to be a bit, um, you have to think outside the box and go, well, how are we going to get the word out? So blow them away with quality. Mm. That was my strategy. <laughs> so I was I was militant with the few people that were willing to work with me. Um, <laughs> nothing would go on the counter that wasn't absolutely perfect. Yeah. If I if it wasn't even close to perfect, I'm sorry, that's not going to be sold. Yeah. The cost of a few ingredients far is yeah right. the, the value of a reputation. Hmm. And to that to this day, now I don't have to do that. I'm no longer the gatekeeper. I have a whole bunch of gatekeepers down there. And pretty much the mantra is, if you don't want to impress your mum with it, don't impress someone else. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I stole it from Tom O'Toole. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you find the the spot in South Frio? Um, just looking, just constantly looking. That was a, a seafood processing plant, actually. So um, it was advertised just on the one of the local social media site or mm. website, real estate site, I'm not sure. Um, and... Went and had a look. The real estate agent said, here it is. I said, there's a wall there. He goes, well, you could cut a door out there if you want to. I said, okay, we'll do that. We actually planned to put a retail store a few hundred metres or half a kilometre down the road. Mm. And we got the kitchen and we thought, oh, we'll have the retail store there and we'll put a, a small sort of the storeroom, we'll use that. We'll put a few, do a few sales there. We never really imagined it would become a proper – I mean, it was always – supposed to be a retail site, that little storeroom, but never to be what it is today yes. where people are, you know, politely queuing around the corner yes. for their turn. Um, that's certainly way beyond our expectations. So what was it like when you, you found you, you found your site and now you've got to go and buy your kit and, mm. and, and the other Nerve-wracking, I think, everything. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of well, yeah, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, but I've done all that market testing. Yes. I've been to the farmer's market. We know we have a thing. That we, we have a product that has demand. Yes. We've, we know the demand is there. We just no, don't quite know how we're going to service it or just how big it is. Yeah. So I did a lot of research and looked at other bakeries, how they're being built, and, you know, wood-fired ovens was always the big argument, you know, the, mm-hmm. the protagonists of it, and then there's the modern technology. I thought, well, what do we do? So – I had to just stick to my good old business brain, which was, well, which one is practical? Mm. So I went with a a gas-fired stone oven that has all the advantages of modern technology but relies on the same science as a wood-fired oven, which is heat coming up out of the stone. Um, And that seemed to be the right compromise because it bakes the product beautifully. Mm. And in those... um did what you'd learnt on a smaller scale immediately translate into the slightly bigger commercial scale? No, it doesn't. <laughs> it, look, it doesn't, it doesn't. I think yeah. you, 
Because being naive is going, a really good thing. <laughs> I suppose it's one thing going from the once a week market every to day. the everyday yeah. bigger scale shop yeah. front. Because I'd been in business once before and it was all consuming and it really did not ruin my life, but it sort of controlled it a lot. Mm. I was very mindful of balance between I've got this beautiful home life I want to maintain. Yeah. But we also have to have a living. And so when we first opened, we were only open, was it four days a week? Right. Yeah, four or five days. Well, yeah, it's very different today. But I've quickly realized that managing a, a culture is actually easier if you keep a daily routine. And the culture being the, the sourdough culture was a lot easier to manage yeah. on a daily basis because I was in there on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday anyway. Somebody had to feed it and yeah. it, it was me. So I thought, well, if I'm here, I might as well have the door open. So we eventually opened another day and another day and now it's seven days a week. It's actually easier to run it seven days a week because it just keeps on happening. Next day, next shift, next crew, just one day rolls into the next. Whenever public holidays or those sorts of things come up, it's a bit of a, oh, I have to manage this, <laughs> a yes. day where it's closed. So um, to get back to the question of is it the same small scale, big scale, it is, it's just more of it and it's you have to learn it. And I think being naive means you step into that space Willingly, yeah, <laughs> and right. and with completely you know novice approach, and you quickly realise, well, we need to be professional about this. We need to educate. So start reading books, start learning. YouTube's a great resource for seeing how bakeries are fitted out properly, um, and also just having a go. I was very deliberate um, before we actually opened the shop. I was very deliberate not to train with another bakery. Because I was self-trained, self-taught. And the only thought I had was not that I'm better, but I might see something that the industry can't see. Now, I don't know if I have seen it or not, but I deliberately didn't want to have a professional approach to bread making. Yeah. On the off chance that I might stumble over the magic pill that makes it um, even more excellent than it is. Yes. And I think the magic pill is just... It's actually attitude. It's not an ingredient. It's a. It's an approach to it that it doesn't focus on energy that you put in. Yeah, exactly. And if you if you don't keep that, and if you don't nurture that within your crew, then you know you'll be another bad bakery. So, and there's unfortunately there's plenty of room for those. So, what was what were the early days like in terms of reception and waiting for that market to come to the door? It didn't take long. I think South Romano is this community of people that really talk a lot. Um, <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's a country town, you know, and that's kind of where I grew up as well. And people talk and I think it took about a month and then suddenly there was momentum and there was conversation and we were able to win that conversation and get people to talk about us and say, oh, there's a nice bakery down the road. There's nothing better than someone else saying that something's good. It, the personal endorsement is far outstrips mm. any advertising campaign, any social media post. It outstrips everything. All those other things are helpful, but personal endorsement from my friend, my neighbour, my auntie, my uncle, whoever it is, that's the ultimate compliment that we can receive. People you don't even know. Yeah. People that you don't know saying something, hey, that's where I get my fix of, you know, linseed bread or whatever it is. Um, it's a really, you know, that is also part of that enriching element that business can do to people or can do to people that, that business causes is that people, you know, they have something in common again. They have something else to talk about. And it's this deeper sense that bakery, everybody in, that works for me, I tell them all the same story, and that is you're not here to sell bread. If you think that, you're kidding yourselves. Bakery is a lot more than that. The bread is the excuse and it's the reason why we're here and why the customers come here. But the reason why they come back is for you, is personal relationships you don't have to be every customer's best friend you just have to be genuine with them and if you do that it doesn't matter what price the supermarkets sell their bread for they'll never compete unless they are able to copy that element which i haven't noticed them doing it yet no so that's really to me the key behind wild bakery is those relationships those that closeness that we can build with Relative strangers and that relative strangers can come in and feel a sense of connection just for a few minutes in the, in what might be a lonely day for them. 
they know that if I, if when I'm there, someone will recognize me, someone will smile at me, somebody will treat me with dignity and respect. And that's, that's really what we sell. We mm. don't, you know, bread, yeah, great. That's the exchange. So, and there is, I mean, as I said, being, <clears throat> being a customer, there is a, it's a great part of my day being able to yeah. pop in and pick up a loaf and say hello. And mm. that's good. I appreciate that. I think it's, 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 um, it's what inspires me way beyond the daily grind, if you like, of, you know, get up at four in the morning and go to work is that, yeah, we're going to make somebody's day today. And you don't know who it is because it'll be long after they're gone that they, that, that it's happened. Um, yeah, so that's, that's actually what we're doing. We're not, we're not selling sourdough. Not just selling sourdough. <laughs> yeah. Um, so has it been all plain sailing since you opened? <laughs> no, there's there ups and downs. Down? Yeah, there is. And I think about after a month, everybody started talking and everybody started to recommend us. And that sort of kept the lights on and the, the wheels turning on the machine. Um, I think after about two years, we were really confident. We thought, or I was really confident. I thought, this is great. Let's go and open another one. The last thing I wanted to do was build a franchise or a multi-store business model because that just puts me back where I was yes. five years earlier. So I thought, well, we'll build another wild bakery, but we'll call it something else in another community and try to do the same thing. Obviously, there's still a lot more I've got to learn because I went to, there was a shop came up in Cottesloe. I thought, okay, this is a good site. It's the right physical dimensions. And yep. I think I understand the market and, so we went up there and we opened a place called Baker Street. And it's not that it was a tremendous failure, but it just never happened. There was never this community feel to it. There was never anything about it that really was as rich as what we have at Wild. Um, and to this day, I really can't put my finger on it. So I, there's obviously a lot more I need to learn about mm. Um and it's not that we had a great core group of customers there. It was a sustainable business model. It just didn't reach that critical mass where everybody was excited about it like they are about the little store in Fremantle. Mm. So that at the same time that that happens, the other bakeries in Fremantle were getting quite competitive and refurbishing their stores and, and all of a sudden, up. the sales are slipping at wild. I'm like, oh, what am I doing here? I'm, yeah. back, I'm back in business. <laughs> this isn't a hobby anymore. Yes. And, yeah, so I had to triage a little bit and try and treat the patients appropriately. And um, eventually, I just made the decision that Baker Street is a good site. It's been set up well. Let's sell it and, you know, um, focus on what it is that we do. Mm. And not long after that... I seem to have stabilized my staffing structure and really get that under control. And it's been not smooth sailing. There's never anything such as that, but a much more comfortable journey for me. Mm. And I think when I'm comfortable and settled, everything sort of reverberates out from that. Everybody's calm you know, in the both yeah. customers and staff and even suppliers are all a lot calmer when the person at the center of the storm is calm. Yeah, is is able to you know accept whatever's coming their way. Yes, with comfort. Where did the name Wild come from? It's about the the sourdough culture, right? Yeah, we we actually started the business in the farmers market. We didn't have a name at all. There was never a sign up. But I, I eventually printed a sign called Brioche Bakery, which was really nice. We asked about four people, and they said, "Yeah, that's a good idea." So that seemed like a market tested product. Yeah, a brand. Um, but I just wasn't really big on branding and signage and I was more focused on being a chef and looking at the food and is it right? Is the customer happy? Is the price right? Mm. Um, yeah, the actual aesthetic has never been my strong points. But when it came to opening the retail store, I stood my ground because Wild had come up in the past and it had been shot down by higher authorities than me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I stood my ground and said, no, I'm going to, fall on my sword here if this doesn't go my way. So I just like, okay, well, let him have a win. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but wild actually is the culture that happened. It's the wild yeasts within yeah. the sourdough. So for me, there was a, a, an important connection between the name and what, what we're trying to do and how that's trying to affect our human health. Um, 
most people wouldn't make that connection. Only a bakery nerd like me would. So yeah. I think there's probably half a dozen out there like that. Mm. <laughs> um, and I've actually noticed once we had to do the registrations for it, we found out, oh, there's actually quite a few wild bakeries around the world. I think the first one I found was Wildflower in America. And then there's another place in, I think it's Queensland. There's a wild drum or something other bakery. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So now we've you've um, expanded out beyond bread. There's cakes mm. and there's there's savouries. You can get a coffee there. Was is that was that gentle by bit by bit by bit? Absolutely, very deliberate. Don't do more than you can do. Don't do more than you can control. So just bit by bit, and also people by people. You know, I meet someone. Oh, these are the skills you've got. Oh, okay, I could use one or two of those. So, you know, when I found someone that could make coffee. Let's get a coffee machine. You know, that it, it's kind of letting it become an organic development rather than having a strategic plan and saying, yes. right, after a month we're going to do this and yeah. after three months we're going to do that. It's a far more hippie approach. <laughs> um, whether that's good or not, I'm not sure, but I think it's it's a matter of taking playing the cards that you're dealt and going, yeah, I can play with those. I can make a hand out of that and not really worrying too much about, how does it look or anything like that? Just worrying about is that core value still there? Is it still the value for the customers and for the business? Is it still sustainable, that balance between the two? And if it is, then it's a good decision. I think at some stage I've come up with this idea that because it nurtured our family in the beginning, the bread, mm. I thought, well, if it's nurturing us, I want to share it with others. So now whenever I've got a decision to make, that's the question I ask myself is, would I do this for my family? Mm. And if the question to that is yes, then it's a no-brainer. It's a very simple choice then. It doesn't matter how hard the choice is or what the decision is. It becomes very simple, yes or no. And then you have to go through the process of whatever it, whatever yes the implications are. So always coming back to a very simple question is, to me, the key to not treading on too many landmines. Yeah, yeah. So what does the future hold for Wild Bakery? Well, we want to expand on – we've had, once again, just letting our market dictate what we do mm. because I have this idea from the beginning and I don't know how much of a trip it is, but it's it might well be my bakery, but it belongs to the community. They are the ones that support it. So if they don't support it, they won't have it. Yes. That's why we're not in Codiso anymore. They, it wasn't supported. There was something not quite right, so it's not there. So when the community says to us, hey, we want to learn about how to make sourdough, okay, well, I'll teach you. And people are like, but you'll lose customers. Okay, I'll lose customers. I'll actually teach people how to make bread. I actually think it'll give me more customers Yeah, because – I'm giving them a deeper understanding and perhaps they'll understand all the effort that goes into it and they'll go to hell with it. He yes, can make it himself. <laughs> I'll go to Darren, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so we started doing a few small baking classes a couple of years ago and we just are too busy and don't have the right infrastructure to do it where we are. Mm. But it would be good to do to offer that in a new site. So we looked around at other sites to relocate the bakery to and we found one, I kid you not, about 200 metres away, there's a, a building there that seems to suit all of our criteria as far as access and all those sorts of things and, and space. So now we can not just sell loaves of bread, we can teach people how to make bread. So you could come from another country and we'll teach you. You could be an industry professional, I'll show you how it's done. Get into the kitchen, we'll show you how it's done properly if you want to make it on a big scale. Mm. If you just simply have a hobby at home or live in a remote location and you want to make this, great, we'll show you how. So teaching people to make bread is going to will add a new level of understanding to the bakery and it'll add just a little bit of interest as well like what's going on with that group yeah you know when people are in there it's now they can forever they've been able to see where the bread's baked but they don't actually see the process because it's behind yeah a, a labyrinth of doors that you just can't get at um whereas if we relocate it we can design it so that we can be a bit more transparent about where are the ingredients? Like this chef's table, like that. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully if we can bring that to life, we'll enrich everybody's experience of what going to wild is all about. Mm. So um, beyond doing that, you, you, you get 
adults who want to do that, but it's also for me, we're a family business. So we need to teach kids. And as much as you might need a cattle prod to do it, um, we did what we've market tested this once again. We did, we did a group, um, in Cottesloe. We had a big space. So we did a few kids groups and it was great. I mean, it's, oh my God, bring some ear plugs and a good cattle prod and you'll get the job done. Yeah. But, um, it's good fun. There's a real energy around young kids around yeah. four and five and six years old. They'll throw flour all over each other and who cares? Yeah. You know, they'll scream and yell and they'll also listen. If you can get their attention, even if it's for 30 seconds, you've got them. And I think if we can get young kids at a young age interested in healthy food, that sets them up for a lifetime of mm. curiosity and a lifetime of good eating habits. So that's probably one of the things that gets me the most excited about the next phase of the bakery is we'll continue doing what we do, but we want to add another level of richness to it. Mm. So teaching, sharing knowledge, I think, is the next phase. So. What, what is it about Brett? I don't know. It's 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 in everything. We, it's a nickname for money, isn't it? Dough yeah, making dough. dough. Yeah. Um, it's it's in our religions. It's it's everywhere. It, it's a strange thing that we can make grass edible. You know, like we harvest grass seeds, grind them up into flour, mix them with a bit of water, ferment it for a while, bake it in an oven. It's a long process, yeah. and yet we're eating grass. This, I don't know what it is. It's a very, it's very earthy. Yeah, it really t sort of brings us down to earth and really I think when you share things with people, when you share food with someone, you 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 have a special moment with them. You know, that old saying of breaking bread is, mm. you know, I think it's very primal, a bit like a, you know, a fire. Everybody's drawn to a fire. Like I live in the hills now and, you know, this time of year in the middle of winter, everybody's burning fires outside to get rid of the, the bushfire to keep the fuel load down. And all the neighbourhood comes out. Everybody, I was on the weekend. We were burning a lot of leaves and leaf litter in the bush. Kids come running around. Parent, my neighbours who've been away on holidays come over. It's just, it's the same sort of thing. Just draws us in and creates conversation, creates community. So maybe that's what bread does: is it creates community. I like that. Mm. So, what have you learned about yourself in this journey? I'm not a patient man. I need to, I need to be a patient person. Um, yeah, it's, I don't think there's any one thing. I think you keep on learning little things about yourself. Yeah. Um, I'm a very obsessive character. I never would have described myself as that 10 years ago, but now I'd say, yeah, I'm pretty obsessive. <laughs> and I notice it now when I'm, when I am being obsessive. And I think that realization means that you can break out of it a bit sooner when you start to notice you're doing something that might be, um, you know, an OCD type behavior, you know that, oh, I can choose now. I can <laughs> choose to continue or I can choose to take a break from it. So yeah. I think for me, it's just learning all those little things about yourself that um, maybe might make you more tolerable to those around you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, learning to be patient, learning to, to rein in my obsessions um, and they're good. They work for me as well. They mean I, I don't, when I get hold of an idea like building this new kitchen, I woke up at four o'clock this morning and I was thinking about which way I'll direct the doors and, you know, it becomes a constant 24 mm. hour a day thought. Yes. And that's okay. It's okay it, for a project. Yeah. It's okay as long as you know to stop it at some stage and, you know, maintain normal human relations with everybody around you <laughs> and not just talk about cool room panels. <laughs> <laughs> How do you keep yourself grounded? How do you come, what do you do away from the bakery to keep yourself grounded? Yeah, I put a big space between me and the bakery. I found living here in Fremantle being very close, I was starting to get that obsessive, oh, I'll just pop down, I'll be back in, you yeah. know, that sort of conversations going on in the kitchen at home. Go. It's too easy to go there and too easy to, oh, I'll fix it. And, I, and I'm self-sacrificing quite often. I'll fix it. I'll do everything. Yeah, yeah. Whereas we moved to the hills last year and it's a half-hour drive. Well, I'm not going. <laughs> yeah. It can burn to the ground or I could pick up the phone. Yeah, yeah I'll probably pick up the phone. So yeah. structuring your life around it to, um, to work for you rather than against you and work for your characteristics because most people, for them, it works to be close to 
their workplace because save on the commute time. For me, the commute time is a time to process yes. all my obsessions and all the things that I've sort of experienced throughout the day and get them out. So by the time I'm home, it's like, right, I'm ready to be there. I'm ready to ask everybody how their days were and see what's going on in the rest of the world rather than, you know, been five minutes around the corner and still been very pent up and very anxious about whatever's transpired during the day. Mm. Um, Are you in the seven days or? No, I, I work less and less. Um, good crew, good training. It comes and goes. You can't be, you know, you can't say it's the same all the time. But um, my goal is never to be needed but to want to be there. So as long as I'm close to that, I'm happy. I yeah. like to be there. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice, fun space to be in. So I, I miss it if I'm not there, but I don't need to be there. There's a big difference between, you know, having to fill a shift and wanting to be there to do a shift. Mm. So um, that helps. Um, exercise helps. I ride my bike probably not as much as I should. Um, mm. But, yeah, if I'm not working in the bakery, I'll be on my bike just trying to get some exercise and, you know, go up and down some hills. Yeah. Um, what else do I do? That's about it. I, right. yeah. It's not too complicated. Not too complicated. <laughs> just like must, yeah. I guess it must be interesting because um, you said, you know, you've, know, you've learned you're, you're not always a patient person. Mm. It almost seems like you have a winning formula with, with Wild. And, yeah. And... How do you actually sit still with that and go, it's a winning formula, let's keep the, keep the quality, keep the standards. I mean, okay, you're going to move 100 yards and mm, you can mm. do things, but yeah. Yeah, How- why? Why wouldn't you want to build a franchise? Everybody is curious yeah. about that because it rips the soul out of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's another bread pun, but it really does. It's called, It's kind of – it. Business should be about more than just making a dollar. Yeah, like I said at the start. I know. And and it's it's a hard question to quantify the answer to is what else can it do? But surely it can do a lot. Like one of the things that we want to do with the new store is we've got this beautiful space there. And well, can't we help people raise money? Couldn't we do like I see these sort of junk food fundraisers because that's all there is to choose from and we use these junk food companies and we call them junk food because they really are bad food to sponsor sporting events don't get me lost on the irony in there yeah and it's simply because there's no other choices those businesses are filling a gap and a demand and i think well, maybe mine could not because i want to make a dollar out of it but because it could just be a better fit promote a sports club by telling them, hey, come here, bring your network of people and there's no hire. Pay for the ingredients and that's it. I don't want to make a dollar out of it. What I will get out of it is I get to look good and I get to all your network get to know about us that Mm. they might not otherwise know. But more importantly, you have another choice in your fundraising arsenal of of, um, decisions. You can pick this or you can pick the the other things, which are probably – not such good nutrition choices. Yeah. Um, so, but still not answering the fundamental question of why wouldn't I want to yeah. replicate it? Because I don't know. I don't think money is important. Are you quite settled with that? I think so. It's in a hard yourself. one. Look, it is in difficult yourself. because we're, we're greedy by nature. I think humans will always want more though. Mm. Squirrel away another nut sort of thing. But, we just have to realize that when you serve others, you're happier than when you serve yourself. And I could build a hundred stores like this and I'd be serving myself 100%. Would I be happy? Hmm. Would the people around me be happy? Would they be satisfied? Surely the better thing to do is to realize when enough's enough and then to turn around and say, well, how do I make it good for you and you and the other person? How do I help everybody else achieve a sense of equilibrium? And hopefully by doing that, I might notice that mine is staying quite centered and quite balanced. Yes. So I think it is hard. You can't – temptation's always there to want to be bigger and better. And But, yeah, you can say no. Mm. It's not the end of the world. If you could go back and have a chat with the Dara, who's probably finished 
um, he's seven years in the kitchen and he's about to come out and wants to create a business and give him a piece of advice, what would that be? Do you know, gee, it's a tough one, isn't it? You can't, it's, it's a great hypothetical, but it's, yeah. um, I originally wanted to build a retail store. I just couldn't afford it. Right. So I would say be more patient. That's pretty much it. Just <laughs> no, really yeah, there is, isn't there? Just there's something else. There's another way. Yeah. Not the traditional way. It, almost as though I now know that what works for me is anything that's that's not been done. If something's been done a particular way, don't do it that way. And that's what'll work for me. That's it. Might not work for anybody else, but I know that being counterintuitive is my is my fit. Yes. So I would probably say that to myself. Don't copy. Find your own path and do it. So, yeah, that's my advice. Superb. And um, finally, um, for anybody else out there who wants to go and uh, create food and sell it, and do you have any ad- advice for that? For that, it's a really. There's no formula. There's no. I hear people, whenever I hear someone say my passion is food, I literally, my eyes roll into the back of my head and I fall asleep. <laughs> because if you have to tell me it is, it, it's not. And if you're telling yourself it is, it's guess what? It's not. It's there. It's present. And if the person that you're trying to communicate with doesn't notice it, then it's not there. Get in tune with that, whether it's actually your passion or whether it's, you know, some – you know, hyped up media sense of it, of its importance is what's driving it. I think really hard for us to filter out signals that come through um, all the different media outlets and in our lives. Mm. We're all told to want a lot of things, a new pair of shoes or whatever. Do you really want that? Is that actually going to make things, make your life richer, make your experience of the world better? Mm. Try to get in tune with that rather than, you know, finding a – get in tune with what really works for you. Um, and come from that place. Yeah, rather than I want to look like that, which doesn't – it's just not a good place to come from. It's not healthy. People should tell you what you're passionate about, not the other way around because mm. it should be present in you. I like that. The problem is you have to know to talk about it. You have to already have the interest and the curiosity of it without um, – been present to it so don't know if that will help or not (laughs) (laughs) awesome Dara it's been awesome talking to you today it's Mm. fantastic to hear the story behind the bread that I so enjoy thank you going and it I enjoy my ritual every couple of days of coming in and 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 I always like the try the try me bits on (laughs) (laughs) not my best idea but someone else's (laughs) yeah 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 but since then I've gone home with a couple of cakes which I never thought I would have done so there we go so no it's been awesome to hear the story and awesome to um just hear how um Wild has come from such an authentic place and the meticulous nature of market testing and things like that I think there's a lot of lessons in there yeah it's not even deliberate it's kind of circumstances that led to a lot of that mm. but um, yeah it's been my pleasure and thanks for indeed thank you very much no worries <laughs>